The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Labs, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. Today we're going to be talking about porn, but not in the usual way, or not just in the usual way. A newish exhibition at the Museum of Sex called Hardcore is a sort of survey of smut. I think uh, like 150 years of... Um, It covers 150 years of erotic content. And we're going to be talking about Mark Snyder, who you just heard, the director of exhibitions for the Museum of Sex, about that show, and a little bit about what we're looking at now, especially, I guess, what women are looking at now online. We're also going to be talking about what I'm told has been a truly historic season of The Bachelorette. Is that right, Allison? I think it's a little overrated, but we'll get into it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As I understand it, for the first time in the show's history, they finally got a star with the courage to forget the show's weird, prudish sexual politics and actually talk openly about all the fucking she's doing. Yes. And we're going to be talking with um, Jada Yuan, another uh, New York Magazine staffer who's been excitedly following the show online. All right, on to our first topic, the history of porn. Mark Snyder of the Museum of Sex is here to talk about their exhibition, Hardcore. Um, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about the show, what you were trying to do with it, um, where it came from, how you set the parameters, all that stuff. Um, So uh, Hardcore is a century and a half of obscene imagery, um, focuses on content from 1821, which was the first American obscenity trial, up through 1972 with the release of Deep Throat. And I think the idea behind creating Hardcore was that I think in a modern internet age, we kind of think we invented hardcore, but it's actually something that's existed for a long time. And so we went through the museum's permanent collection and worked with a couple of other lenders to kind of round out the show and just kind of show that what was happening isn't new, that this is something that's been going on for a long time. And how do you do, <laughs> how do you actually define hardcore? Is it just sexual explicitness or is it somehow... Something needs to be taboo breaking or... Yeah, I mean, I th- hardcore is... I mean, I, I think both of those things, um, just pushing the limits, like what what is hardcore in at one point is not as hardcore at another point. But we are talking about extremes. It isn't just, oh, this little bit of leg is a little bit taboo. We're, we're talking about something much more extreme than that in this exhibition. Like orifices being penetrated. Orifices. I mean, how dirty are we talking? <laughs> it's, I, as as we plan com- which of our family members to take to this exhibition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> depending on your family members. Um, I mean, definitely, you know, you'll see money shots, bodily fluid uh, from the... Victorian era. So it, things are pretty extreme in that sense. Do you have like a, a favorite item that you'd like to... One of the things that I absolutely love, which is part of the museum's permanent collection, is uh, we have two brothel guides from 1855 and 1856, which are like a map of New York City and where you can go to have sexual relations. Who uh, put those together? What, um, so there like were, the Tourism Bureau? I mean, pretty much, so there would be... Um, these were publications that you would have bought from um, book publishers, uh-huh. would make them, and oh, really? then sell them. So they would be sold on the street or in erotic bookshops. Do they like tell you what's at this particular brothel? Yeah, I mean, they, they break it down of, you know, from what the decor is, the service you can expect. What are the uh, categories of service that they're talking about? Um, I mean, they're, you know, from the food to, like, the girls that you'll be yeah. meeting. Is there usually food at 
Yeah, I was about to ask. You know, one of my friends was telling me about (laughs) visiting, like, a brothel, and he's like, the weirdest thing is that there was a giant meat and cheese platter sitting there. I mean, I guess you get hungry. snack while you're waiting. Full service. I mean, I think it's about (laughs) extending that experience I suppose, right? But we also have some really... Great. There's a 1930s selfie of just a couple engaged in spanking each other, and they have a cord that's hooked up to their camera shutter so that they can pull it, and they actually took a selfie, as we like to call it. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) And how much of what we're talking about is, like, would we understand now as amateur versus professional production yeah um i mean it depends on your idea of professional i suppose um (laughs) i mean i think a lot of the victorian content would have started out as a pretty private venture though as it continued to get reproduced they images that were taken in the late 1800s would then be republished as what they're called french postcards not actually from France, just called French. The, the, yeah, yeah. Much like the French fry. French, <laughs> French kiss, French I think, is a yeah, little Yeah, I suppose that's the better well, analogy. There, guys, fine. <laughs> it's interesting. Oh, you mentioned, you've mentioned the word Victorian a few times. So mm-hmm. um, how did you choose to start with 1821? Were you trying to capture uh, kind of the long Victorian era? Uh, what well, was your... with the 1821 was the first American obscenity trial. So prior to that point, America was relying on imports for their erotic industry from Europe. And as import laws were becoming more and more difficult, instead of just waiting for something to come across the sea, they started developing it themselves. The American market was pretty much a straight-up mimicry. The first American obscenity trial in 1821 was based on a book known as Fanny Hill. And that was a much earlier book that was just being reprinted and remade over and over and over again. So it wasn't until... A book publisher made it in 1821 that suddenly it crossed the boundary for the American people. And I think that's kind of why we chose to start there. And were there like particular cities where like people were pervier and there were more bookstores? <laughs> I, mean, like, yeah, the, uh, I mean, New York was pretty much the center. The yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. especially. Um, and then once we move on to kind of a lot of the early stag films, which were the early pornographic loops, about 10 to 12 minutes. That and were, those were not hardcore? Oh, they were hardcore. Yeah. The first surviving American stag film is from 1915 and definitely features hardcore sex. And, you know, that just continues. What is the distinction that makes it a stag film versus you always, you know, uh, hear about the stag, the early stag films versus like the modern narrative porno? Uh, okay, or... so the stag film came from the idea of a stag party. So uh, uh, it would have been a group of men watching porn together. That's so weird. <laughs> he, I, mean, I don't I, know what you guys do. <laughs> I mean, it, it definitely shaped the way that it w- developed because you were charging admission to come in. And then the public response was very much that a public response. You were right. in you were in a place talking with other people. So you would there would be cheers or booing and And at the time this was technically legal or illegal? The I mean it was kind of just off the grid. Right. So like the stag film was really not something that was you know, it just wasn't something you really talked about. It was much uh. more of an underground sort of thing. And I think that's something that the museum is very dedicated to trying to do is preserve these as artifacts of history because they tell us so much, but there's so much about, you know, us 
as a culture wanting to just not talk about it and hide it. So a lot of these artifacts just disappear. You know, in the exhibition, we actually have a glory hole from the 70s. Tell, Wait, how like do you the, have a yeah. glory hole there? Do you there? have like the wall? Uh, okay. We have basically, yeah, it's a section of wall uh-huh. uh, with different holes and writing all over it. On the wall, it claims to be the last glory hole in Manhattan, um, whether or not that's <laughs> true. What year was, was it? I don't know I mean, the, the, uh, <laughs> well, the, the, the idea with multiple holes that then there are multiple dicks coming out? Uh, you know, <laughs> at one time? Where was it? Well, so it came to the museum's collection from a private donor who actually had it installed in their house after it was installed in a public location. They had a panel so they could remove it or and cover Ah, it up so that if someone was coming who they didn't want to see, they had a glory hole. So it wasn't just like a 24-7 access sort of thing. So very cool. (laughs) It feels kind of like, I mean, what you're saying about these artifacts being so rare and like now in modern times, like our generation's porn will forever be easily accessible. Yeah, it just feels like our porn's less special because it's not rare. And in someone's grandpa's attic. I mean, I do think that there are things that are less rare, but I also think that people are able to find those communities much easier. That thing that you were into was very difficult to put that out into the universe that you wanted because you had to publicly say that somehow that you were interested in that. And now with the anonymity that comes from the Internet, I think it's easier to find communities, you know, across the globe of a very, very similar specific interest. So it's fascinating. I don't know if that anonymity is like a good or bad thing. I can't decide. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm always I'm always torn about that too. It's interesting. I mean, it seems like they had to work so hard to create and save their porn. In, I do. You know. I mean, and so Anthony Comstock, he was a postal inspector in the 1800s, and he basically made it his personal mission to destroy smut. And so he you know, went around destroying things. So we actually, in the exhibition, we also have a collection of stuff that came from a Brooklyn brownstone that was hidden inside the walls, like an entire collection of like photographs and like little books. Um, So just that idea that you did have to hide it and it wasn't, you know, not just hiding it from you know, your loved ones, but hiding it from the law. Yeah, it's interesting to me to think about how much of the erotic charge of porn is connected to that, like, hiding, um, and whether we're losing any part of the erotic charge by, like, being completely comfortable and open about it. I don't know. Well, you, you do feel like modern porn that... um the sort of like rough storyline or fetish is somehow creating an artificial feeling of inappropriate or bad. Like Jezebel, they traced the popularity of incest porn and incest erotica among women. Apparently some of the most popular erotic novels are like about incest all like the time. Like all of B.C. Andrews, like every right. every series has a brother and, and par- sister yeah. relationship. So they began that and, and then they were saying that it, like the sort of like modern erotic novels and particularly the ones that pass around online um, that become the sort of like underground popular things when we're down with sex in like every way to create that narrative of I'm not allowed to you sort of have to reach for right. <laughs> increasingly creative methods <laughs> yeah, and it, permutations. It's, it's interesting because otherwise. I think they're, you know, that impulse, you know, early stag maker, you know, as that as they developed into the 60s prior to the porn industry taking off, like they really were a group of people who were also trying to push those boundaries. Like what can we introduce in the same way to shock and to yeah. really push the boundaries? Like how do we get people to look at our thing instead of somebody else's thing? And I think 
you know, the creation of Deep Throat was actually that impulse to, you know, look at something in a mainstream lens, but really pushing that envelope of, okay, let's look at sex. And it gave rise to that idea of porn chic, of this is actually a really cool thing. So everybody from Jackie O to Jack Nicholson is in the movie theater watching Deep Throat. It's interesting to think about in terms of feminism in part because one of the things we've seen recently is a huge rise in the consumption of porn by women. And I'm interested if, you know, any of you guys have thoughts about how that's changed, what porn is being made or what kinds of things we're focusing on. I think it's interesting that women are looking at lesbian porn more than man-on-woman porn. And I'm wondering, like, is it because female male porn seems so derogatory sometimes and it's like even as women are becoming increasingly interested in watching porn and more open about watching porn there's still the like I don't want to watch like some other woman get jizzed on I want to watch something that's like sexual and beautiful and like respectful which sometimes porn is just not so right so Pornhub did a series of studies recently they partnered with Mike and then they partnered with the Daily Beast and they found that 24% of millennial porn viewers are women, which I feel like that's low, that statistic. I feel like that's problems in (laughs) self-reporting or something. But what they found was that for both genders, the runaway most popular search term was lesbian. And for women in particular, lesbian is the runaway most popular search term as well. And you would assume that of those women, I mean, they aren't all lesbians, of course. When I've talked to women who, like straight women, that are like, I like lesbian porn, even though I don't actually engage in lesbian sex, I think it's that. It has to be about female pleasure if the only actors are females, right? right? It can't be anything else. And you also get that thing of, like, when you're watching straight porn, there's, though not all of it is, like, derogatory to women, it's the feeling that, like, you might come across the videos that are all, like, humiliated women or just the ones where you look and you're like, God, she looks... Ouch, that doesn't look comfortable. <laughs> like, how did she get her hip flexed oh, that she far so back? She tired. Like, let her go. <laughs> I know, right? And yeah. it's just that, like, it's just that 100%, or I mean, not 100%, but more of the lesbian porn, I think, ends up being just focused on female pleasure. We talked about stag films. And I'm wondering how much of it was about female pleasure versus, like, I mean, there definitely, case. you know, there was same-sex female relations had a much different taboo than male-to-male relations. There is a lot of representation of lesbian relationships and relationships. Yeah, (laughs) relationship of the moment, um, as well as group sex happenings. And so that definitely is a theme that people were documenting that for as long as they were documenting themselves. And there's like nothing new in porn, huh? So we've been talking about hardcore new show or newest show at the Museum of Sex with Mark Snyder. Thanks so much for coming by, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right, now let's move on to our second topic, The Bachelorette. Allison, maybe you could stand in for me to introduce it. Um, So we're in the 11th season of The Bachelorette, and I think this has been uh, the most explosive season yet. There have been instances of sex um, that have been discussed on camera, which is like insane. Scandal. Scandal. Never happened in all 11 seasons of The Bachelorette and 30 seasons of the franchise, uh, which includes The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. So this season, our our main contestant is Caitlin Bristow, and she is kind of more of a firecracker than the other seasons. She seems like determined to really test the waters with these guys by making out and like courting them the way that you would court in real life, which is uh, kind of non-traditional in the universe of The Bachelor, 
where people are like really buying into the fairy tale, which means like a sexless, rose-filled, um, like very chaste and prude, uh, like season-long courtship, which is super boring. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think she's also been, you know, like the most discussed bachelorette because when you are honest about your sexuality on television as a woman, you kind of get slut shamed. So there's been a lot of discussing whether or not Caitlin's a slut and lots of social media attacks, which has made for a really interesting kind of off-camera discussion this season. So she's already chosen her husband. Um, and Jada Wan, who writes a lot about the show, is with us today. So I will let her say who Caitlin chose between like kind of dopey Nick and the Ryan Gosling lookalike? The Ryan Gosling lookalike, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pretty clear, I think, through the whole season that he was her number one pick and they just had to keep juicing it up. They have to gin up some sort of controversy because the lead person has already made up his or her mind. Like right away. Really, yeah, really early in the process. What I thought was really interesting about this season was that she was so sure of, of Sean, even though she decided to sleep with Nick first. So you got to see them have all these really awkward conversations about DTRing and, you know, defining the relationship. Yeah, all of that. Jada, I thought the thing that made this season exceptional was that she was like openly fucking everybody. Is that not? Well, not every, I mean, well, I it only takes season. one on this show. It's, but, that is, it was one of many things. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> yeah. so if we sort yeah, of. She was openly, she openly had sex with Nick, I think. When she had eight other people still in the mix, or he was one of eight. In years past, was the weird sort of prudish sexual politics of the show appealing? I mean, it, it has to be a part of what so many viewers found interesting, but it seems to me to be so frustrating and backward. Like, how, how did you guys process it? I mean, I think the my favorite parts of the show, and I've only been watching since um, the Ben Flagnick season, which was like one of the first instances of having this like uh, super. That was the Bachelor, not the Bachelorette, but there was a, a contestant Courtney who like very aggressively went after the Bachelor Ben, and after hours like snuck into his room and they went down to the ocean and skinny dipped and had sex, and it was like like mind-blowing um and i thought that that was the most interesting was finding the transgressions within this like kind of boring like pretty pat uh fairy tale that they had set up when like the whole time you're watching it, you're like oh i know that like either they're making out of camera or somebody sleeping with someone but jada i don't know about you but like did you did you buy were you into the fairy tale the bachelor the sexless fairy tale the bachelor and the bachelorette set up or were you always kind of enticed in watching it thinking of like what's happening off camera that's the that's the most interesting part is that they they wind up going on these fantasy suite dates where they spend a couple alone in this in a fantasy room and there are no cameras and then they never talk about what happened that night and you're just supposed to maybe infer that they had sex but maybe not nick who was also on caitlin's season was the runner-up last year and on the after the final rose he confronted Andy, the woman who dumped him, and asked why she made love to him when she didn't love him. Oh, God, so awkward. We're all cringing. <laughs> if you could see the looks of, like, oh, like Allison and I both immediately, our shoulders, like, rise to our ears, and <laughs> we're like, oh. The thing about Nick. And- it, was, it, was, it was mind-blowing because it was the first time anyone had ever acknowledged that there was sex on the fantasy suite page. What is in a fantasy suite? Do we know like what the room looks like? You kind of see a glimpse of it. It's like there's some roses and it's a nice bed and like a tropical location. But you never see like, oh, is there a bowl of condoms near the bed? Like it's just like it's all 
you know, like beautiful gossamer fantasy. Right. My fantasy of the fantasy suit would actually be that they just walk in and they're like, all right, down to business. So let's get this negotiation. If I marry you, what are we going to endorse? How are we going to make our money? I think my fantasy of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Is no romance at all. Is no yes. romance. <laughs> just like pure, like mercenary ruthless sex. mercenary <laughs> capitalism is what I hope is happening. If we assume that other people are probably doing something off camera, having some kind of relationships with each other, whether it's sexual or not, what did Caitlin do that sort of forced that conversation into the fore? I mean, she invited Nick back to her hotel room during a one-on-one date, and no one stopped them. I mean, the producers followed them, and then they... How crazy would it have been if the producers did stop them? (laughs) And I guess they didn't have mics on, but they used the boom mics to, to like... To get eavesdrop their noises. So it was, that was kind of gross. Did oh, he so you stay? Heard, you did heard? he? You heard the sex? Did he stay the whole noises. night? He, yeah, I think he stayed the whole night, and then the next day she was freaking out about it. And what, what I thought was great about like her her freak out was that I've definitely had that freak out. Um, <laughs> and it, but she was having a freak out. She kept saying it was not about the act, but it was about her affecting the other relationships that she was in. She just sort of hadn't really thought through. That she was also dating mm-hmm. eight other people. Well, in, the, in that context, yeah. there's no way that you're going to be able to keep that fact a secret. Right. It's like the producers <laughs> yeah. are going to be telling your other boyfriends or right. you know, whatever. And like they, well, which we did, eventually the did on camera, which was also I thought really amazing, was that she sat down Sean, who's now her fiance, and they had this discussion where she said, "Look, I had sex with Nick, and I I want you to know because I don't want you to find out later." And mm-hmm. he had to go through his whole emotional escape. And we watched it, and it was just, it was awesome. Yeah, it's definitely been the realist season. I mean, you were right in saying that it, we've watched, like, an actual relationship kind of happen versus just, you know, to producers choosing the front runner or whatever. At this point, like, the main prize of these shows is not actually winning. It's coming in second so that you can then be the be, star of yeah. the next season, <laughs> right? continue on the franchise. Yeah, which so. is such a weird dynamic. I know. I guess no one really is there for love. That we're finding out. Do you think they're there for love? Do you think? Ooh, I don't. I mean, question. I I seem to think that I I have a feeling that Caitlin and Sean might actually make it a lot little longer than the mm-hmm. others, just yeah. because they went, they had, you know, they went through what a normal couple might go through, where you're sleeping with other people until well. She's sleeping with other people until right. they become exclusive, and then they and they talked about it, and then he had to sit through and watch it all happen on TV, and they're still together, and they still seem to be, he still seems to be in her. It makes sense to me also that say all these bachelor and bachelorette contestants start dating each other afterwards. You know, people from other seasons, a really important experience in their life that ends up being really formative to who they are and their careers or their whatever else. The only people that understand that are the other contestants, you know, the people that mm-hmm. that really understand this, I imagine, sort of formative moment in your life. Yeah, I knew a friend of mine was uh, actually, uh, you remember a while ago I was talking about the Scantron theory of dating? Like yeah. Many, yeah. Many episodes ago. Which I've quoted a lot, by the, the way. The guy who came up with this is actually a friend of mine who was on The Apprentice and was like the first person to get into a relationship on The Apprentice. What? Wait, what's his name? Which Apprentice character are we talking about? <laughs> um, Google this immediately. His name is Tim Urban. Uh, he was dating a girl on The Apprentice named Nicole. Um, and they, but they met there on The Apprentice. They met the on Apprentice. the show, 
And it was a scandal because there had never been any. It seemed like there had never been even any sexual tension on The Apprentice, at least that was appeared. I know camera. workplace sex. Totally, <laughs> it breaks every taboo. But they they were like so. I, they're probably both angry for for me to say it. they were so <laughs> poorly matched. But it was like like they did have this one thing in common, which is that they had been on this weird TV show together and gotten yelled at by Donald Trump like all the time. <laughs> And they ended up staying together for like six months after the show with like everybody in both of their lives being like, this is the worst relationship you could possibly have gotten into. Nobody understands like they do, yeah. I guess, joined together. Do you feel like, is there a difference between the way the men band together versus the relationships between the women on the, the Bachelor seasons? I feel like I have some insider knowledge because I, I recently talked to a former contestant. So they all hang out together. I, I think they, they all hang out together on an equal level, but the women are maybe encouraged to be more catty towards each other. Yeah, I believe that. Whereas someone told me, and I'm probably quoting off school, that in the first few seasons of The Bachelorette, the producers couldn't figure out how to create any drama because dudes just don't work that way. They're they're just like, oh, I'll punch him and then it'll be over. (laughs) 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 You know, like, why do we have to keep prolonging this? This is really stupid. So I think what they've done over the years is try to put in more guys who are perhaps wannabe actors or fame horrors. And that's uh, why you get all those weird job titles right. on there, like, like the former investment banker or <laughs> pantspreneur. Yeah, JJ was I my didn't... favorite. Ugh. I kind of want to audition for The Bachelorette, but I think that my, or The Bachelor, I think that I'm too old. I'm like out in pasture compared to those girls. What is the age range? <laughs> it's like 24, I feel like, is the median age. It's that thing where they're all sort of ageless that, like, there's when you have, you know, so many women sort of made up to the same degree. Oh, my God. Totally. And, like, there's just, like, I, I, I don't register any age for them. Well, they, they, I, they definitely don't register as 24 to me. No. They, like, feel so more like make- my mom than, like, <laughs> my, you know, my younger cousin or whatever. I think it's the makeup. They all just start looking like news anchors to me. Totally. Yeah, with the, and, like, the glitzy dresses that are all, like, so out of date. I love well, Britt's Brit, the one who is going to who competed with Caitlyn to be the Bachelorette. Right. She slept in her makeup every single night. That was they sometimes surprise you in the middle of the night with oh. a trip somewhere. <laughs> she wanted to look fresh look and gorgeous. Actually, you know what? If I was on a reality show, I too think I would sleep in my makeup every night. Then I feel like you should totally go on the Bachelor. You'd excel. You can't really. Yeah, I think you, I think I'm too you. old. Am I too old? Maybe I should try out for this Just show. Try. I would like die if you please do. Please. I think they I think they have auditions coming. I mean, you really. Find out. Would they, it be possible to say like more in journalists? sex columnists? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a there was a blogger a few seasons ago, so close enough to a journalist, right? There's a <laughs> campaign out there that Jennifer Lawrence supports to get Amy Schumer to be the next. Oh, actress. yeah, yeah. I would I would watch that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how serious it could be though, right? She wouldn't really be looking for love, would she? Yeah. Would we believe like that she was really going to fall for one of those like like pantstrepreneurs? <laughs> Well, it'd be um, sort of interesting to see her do it like in character. Yeah. In which case, she might actually fall for the pantstrepreneur. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> so is that going to change the future of Bachelor and Bachelorette? Are those shows going to become more open and dirty? Do you think? I, know, I almost feel like people, for the most part, who who watch it, do kind of like love it for those like fantasy reasons that don't involve like like having to listen to someone have a relationship talk. They want like girl to be wooed by many people and find her prince and like like fall in love with the prince along with this woman um and they want their bed to be littered with rose petals exactly and, and like candle lit yeah. um i don't know if you agree jada but i think i think that the the show will kind of keep on being as chaste as it's always been maybe with these like minor eruptions to help 
uh, ratings sometimes. Yeah. I think I think that the reason why Caitlin was getting so much online hate was that was that people were really upset with her for ruining the veneer. Right. That mm. that she was just too real. She was too real. They don't they don't really want to know that in modern life a woman might sleep with several guys who she's thinking about marrying. Right. The sort of masses were perhaps slut shaming her and then yeah. the my access to all of this being things Jada writes. I'm like, yeah. she's a hero. She's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I was definitely sounding that trumpet call in in response to the, the idea that mm. it was probably happening the opposite way everywhere else. We've been talking about uh, The Bachelorette with Jada Yuan, and um, that's it for Sex Lives. Our producer this week is Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Henry Malofsky, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. For Allison Davis, Maureen O'Connor, and Jada Yuan, I'm David Wallace-Wells. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.